Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here. We pray that you will join us, that you will teach us, myself included, that we'll be blessed, that we'll understand communion in a way that would draw us closer to Jesus' heart. And may we be melted and more surrendered than before. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, we are coming to the table, and we are now at the Bread of Life to uh, give a, some of you a review. This is, we have a couple of them that are here for the first time. We've been talking about the foot washing aspect of communion, and then we got into the covenants of communion, which necessitated the need for the foot washing when you get into the covenant, because you have to be at peace with each other, and the foot washing washes our sin away, so that creates the peace that we need to have between us and Christ. And now we're moving into the, the bread of life. And uh, it's a very simple article of food. I mean, how many of you had bread at breakfast or at lunch today? It's on most everybody's table, most every meal. Especially, I had a pastor from Bulgaria, and the concept was, if you had bread, you could live. If you did not have bread, life was over. And um, that was Ilko. And he was very, very much into bread. But basically, all bread is is ground-up grain, some sugar and water, and uh, a regular loaf would have yeast in it. You rise it, you bake it, voila, you have a lunch. And uh, in the farmer world, if you have bread, life is good. <laughs> so, anyways, it is a, a really huge staple, and such a, because it is such a common thing, Jesus used it as an object lesson so that whenever you're eating a meal, you're going to be thinking the bread of life. You notice he used parables and he used objects, and there was a purpose behind that, because he wanted us to, every time we're going through our life and we look at something that he talked about, we'll instantly connect it to him. We'll remember. So when you have a regular lunch or breakfast or meal, it's, it's a mini communion meal, not with all the sacredness per se attached to it, like at church, but um, because you have your meal in front of you and you have your, your liquid and you have your bread, you will instantly be thinking the bread of life and the water of life. So we should... I never realized that until after I got studying into this, how a regular meal really is a reminder of communion. That was quite a thought. It, it changes your meal. You really appreciate it more. So then we can be thinking about Jesus all the time. When you're sitting down, when you're rising up, and you're walking through the way, like it says in the Bible, to teach our children. So, do you remember the lady in the Old Testament, the widow of Zarephath? To show the importance again of the, of the bread. When Elijah came, he said, make me a, a little bit of bread. Give me a drink of water and get me a little loaf of bread. She says, well... I am here to pick up these sticks, I'm going to go make my loaf, and I'm going to feed it to my son, and we're going to die. So in her mind, after that bread was gone, there was no more life. It was physical death in her mind. But she went by faith, and then they did have the, the flour and the, the oil all the time. So bread is a very vital food item. It represents life, hope, joy, strength, and fortitude. And that's why Jesus employed it for communion and so much more. So, the bread of communion. It is, it's representing Christ's body. And most people know that. That's kind of a no-brainer. But um, it goes beyond that. The problem that 
Um, various churches, they use yeast in their bread. We were just talking earlier about the Methodist church. I know I've been to their services. I used to be a Methodist. So they do use, use, they do use yeast. It's just a, a regular loaf of bread out of Walmart. And when you have communion in a Methodist church, you all walk, file up to the front and you tear off your piece, you dip it in the juice, and you chop it down, and that is communion. But Christ's body never sinned. He never sinned at all. If he did sin, we wouldn't be needing, and we couldn't have communion. Because you have to have a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Remember the lambs? They had to be without blemish. There could be no scars on them, no boo-boos. They couldn't have a broken leg. They couldn't have anything. It had to be absolutely perfect as a, as a lamb could be to represent Christ. And so this communion bread, it also has to have no yeast in it because Jesus had no sin. To eat a regular loaf of bread for communion means our understanding of Christ's character and life are very confused. There are people out there who say Christ sinned. And for a Christian who's reading their Bible, that should be like totally bonker kind of thinking. Because if Christ sinned, we have no hope of going to heaven. We have no hope of eternal life. You know what? Neither does he. Because then he'd be in the same boat we're in and he would need a Savior. But Christ is the Savior. He doesn't need a Savior. So his body is completely per perfect. But we don't want to have our concept of Christ's character confused when we approach communion. It is misrepresenting who he is, and it declares a false gospel. You know, it's interesting. You're like, well, a false gospel, why is that? Well, if, if we say that Jesus had sin, then, and he gets to go to heaven, then we can retain our sins and go to heaven. We don't need to surrender all. That's a big statement. The, the, the very popular idea is, you know, you can keep on sinning and go to heaven too. But if you look in your Bible, it's in Matthew 1. Let's see. This is a huge verse that I, I share in my Bible studies with folks. In Matthew 1. Verse 21. When you're there, say amen. For those of you who are able to bring your Bible. Matthew one twenty one, And I got the old King James. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. What's the next word? From. From what? Their sins. That word from is a very big word. It's a very hard word to, to explain. I was studying with a lady from Sudan, and we were studying this, and she says, what does from mean? And I'm like, oh my, I'm not an English major. How do you explain from? So this is what I did. I stood up, and I said, I've been sitting here, and I'm going from there to here. Am I still over there? I went from. <laughs> I moved. So I can't stay. So if Jesus is saving us from our sins, if this is my sinful state and he's saving me from this, I am moving over here to an unsinful state. I can't stay here and still be over there. I'm in one location or the other. So I'm either in one state or the other. Either I'm sinful or I'm not sinful. So Jesus is saving me from my sins. 
So my sins are being removed from me and I'm being removed from my sins. So they're not, those two concepts are not together. And a false gospel is having Jesus with sin in him, which means I can have sin in me. That's right. And it's not, that word is not there. And that, um, I know there's lots of different Bible versions out there, and I haven't read anywhere that they put that word in there, but the popular concept, that is what it is. You know, if it's sin to you, it's not sin to me, you know, we're all good to go. Um, well, you know, we can just kind of fudge, that's not a big hairy deal. But every sin is serious to Jesus Christ. That's why he died. You know, chopping on an apple doesn't seem like that big of a deal at surface value. But it was such a big deal that Jesus said he had to die to stop that sin from reoccurring. That's how big of a deal it was to Christ. So the popular teaching today is a distortion of saved by grace. And the, we were just talking about that, saved in our sins. And that comes from the Nicolaitans in the Apostle John's day, and that's found in Revelation chapter 2. We're not going to go there. But the Nicolaitans, they had a dualistic view that was prevalent among Gnostic Christians. Their, their view, dualistic means two-sided, so they despised the human body. So whatever is in the flesh, whatever you did in the flesh, um, that was like really bad. It was evil. It was considered worthless. It belonged to the physical creation. That was material, so that was no good. But anything belonging to the spirit side, that's pure, that's divine, that's good, it's holy. So we can dispose of the body at will. We can torture it or we can gratify it while remaining pure in spirit. So you can be out committing adultery, but you're okay with God because you're pure in spirit. You could be out killing everybody and stealing and taking God's name in vain, but if you got the spirit, you're okay. So they combine, basically, you can live without the law, you can be lawless, and still be saved. Isn't that a popular teaching? We hear that all the time. Look at our homosexuals. This is love. I have love. See, it's pure, it's good, it's love. God is love. A Lutheran pastor told me, he said, in all honesty, why can't God bless that? It's love. Well, it's not love what God created. It's a perverted love. That's why God can't bless that. But that he was very um, confused and struggling with it because he was bombarded with all this stuff. He was a very nice guy. But anyways, one um, dualism ties body to the domain of the law and then rejects it. Because you're... You physically keep the law. You know, you don't commit adultery. You don't steal. You don't lie. You don't covet. That's all physical things that you do. And so they're like, that's out there. Forget it. But the soul, that's connect connected to the domain of grace, and that is upheld. That's all good. So you have immortality of the soul. You know, you can do all kinds of things and still be going to heaven. But Jesus doesn't accept that. He died on the cross because of that very thing. So moving on, um, when Jesus was in the body, because we're talking about the bread, and the bread represents his body. So we know it's sinless, right? So he's perfect, so this piece of bread is symbolizing perfection. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But while, you know, I was studying this, and when you go to communion, people are like, well, the blood is Jesus' death on the cross, and the body is the death on the cross. And I thought, you know what, this is kind of redundant. You got the same 
meaning for two separate symbols. And I had a real issue with that, so I started praying. I'm like, okay, Lord, what's up with that? What's the deal with your body? Why do we need to have the cracker for your body? And I got to thinking, what did he do in the body? While Jesus was here as a human, he healed people. So when we're holding that bread, it is symbolizing healing. Remember when the four guys came with a guy in the the little um, blanket and they lowered him down through the, the roof of Peter's house? He says, your sins are forgiven thee. And all the Pharisees were all... And you know, they're all upset. He says, do you think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk? To show you the Son of God has power, rise up and walk. And the man stood up and walked. Now, he healed him, so, and it was by faith that he had the healing. It was no magic, it was by faith. So I'm not saying there's magic in this bread to heal us, but I will say if you have faith in Christ, you can be healed, which is the whole enchilada of our existence is with this faith business. So Jesus healed people in the body, so that bread is representing healing. Do you need healing? I know we all have the sniffles once in a while. That's a healing. But do we need a spiritual healing? That man, in order for him to finally be physically healed, he had to have his sins forgiven. That is the true spiritual healing. That's the true physical healing. In fact, if you read different material, it says that he was content with just having his sins forgiven. He didn't even, he wasn't even concerned about having a physical healing. That didn't even matter to him at that point. He was dying happy. But Jesus gave him a physical healing to continue. Thank you. So he took our sins into his body. It's in Corinthians chapter 5, I think, verse 21. I don't have the verse in front of me, and I always get it. I think it's 2 Corinthians. Yes, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He, referring to God the Father, made him, referring to Christ, to be sin for us. This is a huge verse. Jesus took our sin, your sin. So don't tell me what they are, but just think in your mind. I'm going to give you a couple seconds. Think of your sins, past sins that he has forgiven you for, sins you're currently struggling with. Jesus took those into his body. And when he went to the cross, he took them to the cross. So when God the Father looked at Christ, he saw Jesus as the murderer, the liar, the thief, the molester, the rapist. I mean, whatever kind of sin you wanted. What's that? The agnostic, the atheist, you know, the deist. I don't care what you want. Um, he became that. He just didn't put the backpack on, and you know, that's labeled sin there. He actually became that sin. That's why God the Father had to step back. Because sin and the Father don't hang out. They're not buddies. But he loves his son. So he had the darkness cover everything so Jesus couldn't see him, but so he could come as close as, as was possible, but yet still be as far as possible. Does that make sense? 
He wanted to be there because he loved his son, but he couldn't be there because that's what sin required, the payment for sin required. So Jesus, he took our sins into him. The other day we talked about foot washing is confessing. Jesus confessed our sin. That's when he was taking the sin on as his own. You know, let's say I'm a liar. And so then he took my that root of lying, which is lack of trust and lack of faith in the Lord. He took that sin into himself. He experienced the guilt of that. He experienced the pain of that, the separation from the Father of that. He experienced all what that is. When we hold that bread, it is representing he took our sins into his body. Now, he came down from heaven and he took on a human body. That is a big thing. You know, he didn't become an angel. Angels, at least the holy ones, they're holy. You know, he didn't take on their nature. It says he took on Abraham's nature, Abraham's seed. And so he became an actual human in all what that entails. He had bad hair days. He got tired. He got hungry. He had our emotions. When his friends dumped him, he wasn't joyful. You know, when Simon, we talked about him the other day, when Simon did not give him the water to wash his feet or the oil for his head, Jesus felt that sting. He knew what Simon was saying. He knew he was being rejected. How do you enjoy being rejected? No one likes being rejected. Jesus felt that. He took all of that. So he became a human in all the words of that. And think about it too. What was his ancestry? Were they all perfect people? They were not perfect people. What did David do that was so terrible? He committed adultery and he murdered the guy. That was his ancestor. Well, let's think about another one. Um, Abraham. What's the problem with Abraham? He was called the friend of God, but he also had some boo-boos. He did not trust God. He was a liar. He said, wife, you lie for me. So he was an influencer for someone else to lie to save my butt. You know, and he didn't do that just once. He did that a number of times. Oh, and then he listened to his wife when she's like, well, this baby isn't coming. It's not happening. We need to have, you know, a surrogate woman here. So he's like, you don't hear him arguing with her. Hagar must have been kind of pretty. Maybe he was eyeing her for a while. I don't know. But the thing is, you don't have any scripture that says he thought that was a bad idea. There's nothing like that. He, the next verse says, he had her, got her pregnant, and then life went berserk, went bad after that. But even then, he wouldn't get rid of her. So Abraham had an emotional tie to Hagar. But anyway, so Jesus has all of this in his background, just like you and I do. Is your family ancestry perfect? On my father's side, we have outlaws <laughs> from Virginia. We came, you know, all over from the old country, to New York, to Virginia, and the family split. Some went that way, some went up to Michigan, where we are. And, um, you know, we have all different... Where I, my hometown, I'm related to half the town, so half of them are Protestant and half of them are Catholic of my family. We split there in my town, too. But where do I fit in? <laughs> you know what's funny? Um, I was raised Protestant, but I was engaged to a Catholic. <laughs> and... Then I threw them both out the window and 
I, well, I'm still a Protestant, but I, I followed the Lord, and the Catholic guy wasn't as great anymore, and uh, Jesus was much better. So I'm currently a Seventh-day Adventist, but I'm a Christian first. So I'm a Christian Seventh-day Adventist. Anyway, so um, the next one is he united divinity and humanity together into one body, and the only way, you know, when I, I teach this to kids, how do you explain this melding together? I mean, even an adult brain can't handle it. So I have, um, I make Bible studies for kids, and uh, it's called the divinity of Christ, and you have a picture of a perfect person, you know, that the computer drew for me. And that's the, the divine side, and you have to draw the other half. And of course, you never can get it to look just like the first half. And so that's the human side. And you see how it's kind of, kind of goofy, it's oblong, and the eyes are kind of squished here and nice over here. And, and so, so it's, Kind of split Jesus in half. One side is holy and one side is not. That's how I explain it to a kid to help them understand. But Jesus is both of them at the exact same time. He's 100% divine. And he's 100% human. Don't ask me to explain it other than what I did. I'm just asking you to accept it and to believe it by faith. Because the Bible says it's a mystery. So I'll leave it at that. Mysteries are mysteries. Can't understand them. But I know it's true. I do believe that. Now in the body, so when you're holding that bread, you, it's that united um, human nature and divine nature at the same time. That's kind of neat. It's a symbolized, symbolizing that. It, he sympathized with us in, in his human body. You know, he walked our path. He dealt with our temptation. So you can hold that bread and know he sympathized with us because he became a human. He learned obedience. That, that bread is representing his obedience. He understands our struggles with Satan. He overcame the devil in the human form. You know what's really cool about Jesus? I mean, there's a lot of cool things about Jesus. But one of them is he never used his powers apart from the Holy Spirit and God's permission. You know, he always had to pray. He prayed for Lazarus to come forth out of the grave. I mean, I can't call my grandparents out of the grave. If I did, I'd have to say, Lord, would you call my grandparents out of the grave? I don't have that ability. But he could do it by praying to the Father. I have a pastor friend who knows of a lady who was resurrected from the dead. You remember Pastor Phrase? I don't remember the lady's name, but Pastor Phrase knew um, the lady who was resurrected. But I can't remember. I mean, it was like, he's 87, 88. He's 88. So, I mean, this is like way back there in the dark ages. So, anyways, um, very cool pastor. Jesus understands our struggles. He overcame the devil in the human form. So when we eat that bread, trying to look at my notes here, going back upwards to the divinity thing, when we eat that bread, we are receiving, symbolized, symbolically, we're receiving that divinity into our hearts. Because we already have the human side. We don't need any more humanity. We have enough problems with that. But the divine thing, when we eat that bread, we are symbolically receiving that divinity of Christ into our hearts. I have a friend, and she's, I was having a rough time one time. I, I had done something wrong. And she's like, Andrea, you're just human. She says, that's the problem. I am. <laughs> that's why I messed up. <laughs> I need more divine in me than I need human. 
So when we eat that bread, we're symbolically receiving the Christ divinity, his overcoming power in our hearts. Because that's what he did in the body. He overcame every temptation. So I need that overcoming power. And at communion time, I'm receiving it. So if we don't come to communion, we're rejecting that power. We're saying, no, I'm just fine. I'm good. I can handle it on my own. Well, I know I can't because I fall on my face. Just talk to my, my kid, talk to my husband, talk to my friends. I fall on my face. Anyway, Satan trembles when he watches a sincere participant at communion for he knows his power is being broken. Because that divinity is being received. We're accepting that. We're saying, Jesus, I need your divinity in my heart when we eat that bread. So that's why it is really critical to come to communion. There's another thing that the, bre- the bread is. It's affliction. Did Jesus have bad days? We've been talking about He did have bad days. He was tormented by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, he was tormented his whole life. But it was a concentrated uh, moment there for 40 days in the wilderness. And I do not believe that that was a simple time. That it was an easy time. We talked a little bit about the bread, being the stones being turned into bread. I mentioned that yesterday. But you know, the last one, the devil, he had all the glory of the kingdoms passed before Jesus. Now you wouldn't think Jesus would be drawn to, to that kind of selfish ambition. That's not what Satan was offering. He was offering Jesus to have the whole world and to be the owner of it without having to go to the cross. That's what he was offering. Because all you got to do is bow down to me and I'll give you all this. You don't have to go and die. You don't have to be tormented and tortured and scourged and nailed to that cross and hang there for six hours. Just bow down. That's all he had to do. That was the temptation. I mean, when you know you're going to have a rough time, you want to go through it? What do we normally do? If we know there's a car accident, we're, gonna, we're heading right into it, do we put the brakes on? You know, we're going to turn the other way. Um, two months ago, I was hit by a guy. He was going 70 miles an hour. And I was still going. I wasn't at a stop, but I was in rush hour traffic. And I watched him come in my mirror. And I'm like, he's going to hit me. And there, Where am I going to go? I can't go anywhere. There's cars everywhere. So I just... <laughs> You know, I just tensed up and bam, he got me. And, um, but if I could have avoided it, I would. I was looking for every rabbit trail I could go to get out of that accident. But you know, I never got hurt and none of my syrup bottles in the trunk broke. I had eight bottles of syrup, I sell syrup, and they were in the trunk and all the cardboard dividers were all messed up but not one bottle of syrup broke. God cares about ladies who have to clean. So I was really avoiding it. And you know what? God avoided the problem for me. And the guy was super nice. He apologized and paid for my um, fixing of the car and whatnot. So anyways, so Jesus was tormented by Satan. And that was not fun. That bread is symbolizing that torment that Jesus experienced there. We talked about this the first day. Christ became a slave and he's only released by death on the cross. Do you think that was an easy decision for Jesus? to become a slave at the Last Supper. You know, he stood up from the supper. By, by that action, he voluntarily chose to be a slave. 
not just any slave, we talked about that, he was a Gentile slave, which is lower than the lowest dog on the planet. So he voluntarily chose that. That bread is representing Christ becoming a slave. We're accepting he became the slave for us. And can you imagine Jesus is your slave? That's a thought. When we eat the bread, we're accepting he became my slave. But we're also accepting that he wanted to do it to save me. And Jesus, when he did it, he told his disciples, I'm your master, right? You say, and that's well and good. That is true. Basically, when he was talking about that, he was saying, I'm not less than you. Because it says in John 13, Jesus knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going, and he knew who he was. It didn't bother him to become a slave. Because he knew his true identity, even though he lowered himself into that position. And we can do that too. I can come and wash Barb's feet, and I'm not less than Barb for doing it. In fact, it creates a better friendship for doing it. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. So when we eat the bread, we're, we're accepting he became our personal slave in that regard. Christ was hounded by the Pharisees with questions and these, that were designed to trip him up. That bread is symbolizing all the times, you know, the, how is it? How many? There's so many different times the Pharisees were on his case. I'm thinking of the one time where they're like, are you going to uh, say the Caesar thing? Yes. You know why that was a problem? Do you know Pastor Terry? I'm sure you do. Well, for him to, to pay, I'm, I got two stories going on here at once in my mind. The temple tax, that's, I'm on the wrong story. Why would that be bad for Jesus to pay the temple tax? Do you guys know? He's the king of the temple. Priests were exempt from paying that tax. Prophets were exempt from paying that tax. So by him paying the tax, he's saying he's not priest and he's not prophet. So that was a big thing. And the Pharisees are like, they came to Peter and said, doesn't your master pay tax? Well, yes, my master pays tax. And Peter walks in the door and Jesus says, what are you talking about, Peter? We've got to pay the tax now. So go catch a fish. It's going to be in the fish's mouth. So when Peter came, the Pharisees were like, yeah, he's just admitting he's not the prophet, he's not the king, he's not the priest. And Peter's like, wait a minute. The fish is paying the tax. Jesus isn't paying it. The fish is paying it for him. Yeah, that fish is not the priest or the prophet or the king. So Jesus always knows how to get around those things. I learned that from the story of our taste. <laughs> They are. They sure are. So Christ was hounded by the Pharisees, and in the body, he overcame all of those, those trip-ups that they created for him. He always gave them an answer, and there's actually a point where they didn't ask him any more questions. They're like, you know what? This is not working. What is the point? So they shut up. Happy day. I'm sure Jesus kind of went for a few minutes. <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was tortured. No, that was not a fun day. And on Thursday night, we're going to talk about that in much more detail. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, his destiny hung in the balance. Our destiny hung in the balance. I mean, he could have just gone on home, back to heaven, say, you know, forget this. But he sweat drops of blood. 
He was wrestling with accepting sin. You know, that that would be hard. Think of the most sinful person in your community. Don't tell me who it is, but think of them. Or a terrorist or something. And then saying, okay, Mr. or Mrs. Bad Person, I will become you so you can have my life. You know, this ISIS business that we had a few years ago, would you be willing to trade places with that guerrilla terrorist so they could have your family, your home, your freedoms, your privileges, and you go over there to their country and live there unhappy, being chased all the time, killing everybody kind of life? Would you do that? Jesus did that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he finally made the final decision to do that because he took our sin. He became the terrorist. You know, he became the betrayer. He became the deceiver. He became all that. He traded. That was a hard decision. That was torture. That was not fun to do that. So that bread of affliction is representing the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ was mocked and he was beaten with scourging two times. That was interesting when I read that in the Bible. Um, One scourging is 39 lashes. What's that? So he got it twice. So it's 39 times 2, math people. 78 times. And that wasn't just, you know, dad's belt. It had metal and bone on it, and those soldiers were extremely good at it. So it was from the back, the the legs, the knees, to the base of the neck. Those Roman soldiers, they could... They could whip your skin apart till you were disemboweled. I mean, what was there left of him after the first scourging? And they did it again. That bread represents those scourgings and those mockings. He had verbal abuse on the cross. The two thieves, they were going at it on him. The passerbys, they were mocking him. The Pharisees, if you're the Christ, come on down. Then we'll believe you. I mean, how much more torture can you get with that? You've been trying for your entire life to get these people to believe you're the Son of God, and now they say they will if you just come off? That must have been hard to stay there. But he did. What's that? Well, the Bible says, Jesus says, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. If they, tru- they did know he was the Son of God, but they didn't know that he was the Son of God. You know, you can know something but not know it. Let's see. What Jesus experienced on the cross, no saved person can ever realize. Do you know that? Only the lost person will realize it. Because Jesus died the sinner's death. He died as a lost person. He died with no hope. He had faith in the Father, but he did not know that he was going to come out of that grave alive. And the reason why I know that was because when he cried in Mark 15, 34, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He felt completely abandoned. But then... Jesus said, Father, into thy hand I commend my spirit. So he was saying, Father, whatever you decide for my destiny is just fine. Whether I am saved, I get out of this, or I'm lost. 
He died trusting God's decision for his destiny. He did not die knowing he was going to get out of that grave in his human form. Of course, his divine form knew it. But at that moment, that was the way I say it. His divinity was set on a shelf, so to speak, because divinity cannot die. So he had to set that aside so that he could die in the human form. So when he died, he died in a sense, I want to say hopeless, but he died in faith of God, his choice, the Father, what he's going to do with him. And that is something, when we die as a Christian, we die with a hope. He didn't have that hope of the certainty he's coming out. He, so he died something he experienced on the cross what no saved person can ever realize. He knew in the fullest sense what a lost person, an unrepentant person, will endure in the last day. He was removed from God so completely that all hope of eternity was extinguished. Every ounce of confidence was stripped away and absolutely no anticipation of eternal life was allowed. Because he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These words declare Christ's fearfulness of the enormity of his decision to die for us. If the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't bad enough, the cross was a million times worse. And he hung there for six hours. He had time to think about it. He could come off at any moment. But he didn't. Because his love for people kept him there. So Jesus is the bread of life. He's the source of life, the author of life, the resurrector of life, the continuance of life, the maintainer of life, and he's the perfection of life. You know, we have this famous teaching of evolution, right? That that is the source of life. But it doesn't really work that well. They were just sharing last night in the, the meetings. We have so much scientific information that is, scientists are now forced to admit that there is an intelligent designer. You can't escape it. You know, I grew up on a farm, and I was looking at a little sparrow one day, and I'm like, how in the world is that every single feather just going to randomly fit into place on every single bird so it can fly? That's just nuts. You know, I know there's a creator from being on the farm. I know who the source of life was from being on the farm. So Jesus has life inherent in him. He didn't borrow it from the Father. Because he's equal with the Father. So he didn't, um, he didn't go to Walmart and get it. He didn't have to wait in the ration line to get it. You know, he just has it. So he's the source of life. And he's the author of life. He created everything. And of course, evolution tries to say it teaches that it has the source. Satan loves that, but that doesn't really fly. And Jesus is the resurrector. He's the only one who has the power to renew life in this broken life of ours in the next life after death. Satan tells the lost people he resurrected them. Remember in Revelation chapter 20, all the wicked people are resurrected. They get to surround the camp of the saints and the fire comes down and consumes them. The devil, I mean, they believe the devil. They're all marching. That's what it says in Revelation 20. They marched around the camp. It says the devil went out to deceive all the nations of Gog and Magog. Well, that's all your wicked folk. And he tells them, I gave you life, folks. It wasn't the Father, that's what he says. It wasn't the Father, you just listen to me and we can take that city because the tree of life is in there. The devil is still subject to that tree of life. He can't escape it. 
Even he needs it. If he's going to continue, of course, we know the Bible says he turns to ashes. Praise the Lord in Ezekiel. But the thing is, he tells a lie, but his lie ends up in a smoldering pile of ashes after his lie is exposed. We know Jesus is a continuance of life. Eating from the forbidden tree did not give eternal life like the devil promised. The truth of Christ as Messiah is a hard-won reality for Adam and Eve, and Jesus is that tree of life. So the resurrective life is in that bread. That bread is representing he is the resurrector, the author. So when you eat that bread, you're saying, I don't believe in evolution. You know, when you eat that bread, you're saying, Jesus, you're going to resurrect me. I'm trusting in you to get me out of that grave. So eating that bread isn't just, you know, having a snack. You're making quite a statement. You're turning your back on a lot of the world's theories and teachings. Jesus is a maintainer. Satan tries to convince us that his way of life is way better. Really, the devil's way is a short-lived fun and long-lived misery. You know, whenever you pick up a bottle of wine, you think, man, this is going to make me feel good for maybe about two hours, and you have a hangover. Short-lived fun, long-lived misery the next day. You know, my uncle died from it. His misery is going to last quite a while. But anyways, the devil is always telling young people, hey, take this drug, drink this thing, smoke this thing, go sleep with this person, and you're going to have a blast. It's going to be wonderful. And sin is good for a season, right? Moses rejected pleasures of sin for a season. But the thing is, um, it doesn't last forever. You know, when people get tattoos, it looks really cool on a young person. But when they're 80, it doesn't look so cool. <laughs> it does not. And you go to the beach and you see these people, they're from head to foot. And I'm like, for one thing, that hurt. And secondly, it's just going to look all distorted when you're, you know, 30 years down the road. But you know what? They're living for the moment. And they got their girlfriend's name here. Well, in three months or three weeks, that girlfriend's history. Now what are you going to do? Find another girl with the same name? <laughs> my dad only dated Janice's, but he doesn't have a tattoo. You know, and he married my mom. That's Janice. <laughs> dad was smart. But anyway, the devil's fun doesn't last long but the misery sure does. So when we eat that bread, we're saying, Jesus, you're going to maintain my life with true happiness all the time. I trust that you have that happiness for me when you eat that bread. You're saying, I trust you. I'm counting on you to provide that happiness. It's not just a cracker. You're making a statement. Jesus is the perfection of life. This was a really interesting thought for me. We know he's perfect. We talked about a sinless life. So when we're holding that bread, we are holding a symbol of absolute perfection. Now, when you come to communion, do you bring a little baggie with all your little communion pieces in it to church? Do you bring a little bottle of your, your juice? You know, and you sit in your pew and you, you dig it out and you put it there and you dig this out and you pour it and you dig there. Okay, I'm all ready now. You know, we don't bring it to church. We come to church and it's there waiting for us, right? So this perfection of life, I cannot create it. I can't conjure it up. I can't bring it. I have to sit here and my hands are open and I have to receive it. So I am accepting by faith the perfection of Christ, his righteousness. I can't bring any. 
I don't have any to bring. So I come to church empty-handed, empty-hearted. I am a vessel waiting to be filled with the righteousness of Christ. So when you eat that bread, you're holding the symbol of that righteousness and you're saying, I accept it for me. So it's, it's not just simply chomping on a cracker. You're making a huge statement. The purpose of communion is to teach us that the physical bread which nourishes, strengthens, and refreshes the physical body is to symbolically teach that Christ is the only one who can nourish, strengthen, and refresh us spiritually. So that bread is trying to teach a lesson that we are in desperate need of Christ all the time. How long are you going to last if you don't eat supper and breakfast and dinner? How long are you going to last? A few weeks. I mean, i got quite a bit of plumpness here. I could last maybe a month. As long as I drink water. That might be a little bit thinner. But the thing is, eventually I'm going to croak. So... When we have our meals all the time, it is teaching us that we need Christ all the time. You know, we don't do communion once a year. Some churches do. But in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we do it, they say it's quarterly, right? So that's four times a year, right? I never can keep that straight, three to four. Anyway, so we do it quarterly. We're teaching we need to have this renewed. We need to be reminded. We need to relive this experience. We need it refreshed in us so that we don't forget it. We need to constantly be strengthened through Christ. We need to read our Bibles. We need to be praying. We need to be witnessing. But the bottom line is all of that deals with Jesus. Right? We need Jesus. We have a song in the K2 tent. Um, I'm not going to sing for you. I'm not good. But it says, Jesus in the morning, Jesus in the noontime, and Jesus when the sun goes down. And we sing this with the kids. I have it in the morning, though. So we sing it probably about five times in the morning and five times in the afternoon. After a while, I'm singing it in my mind and in my sleep and everything. But we need Jesus in the morning. We need him at noontime. We need him when we go to bed. We need him when we have a good day. We need him when we have a bad hair day. We need him when the kids are good, when the kids are bad. You know, when we're smiling, when we're crying, we need Jesus all the time. That's what communion teaches, if we'll let it. If we'll think about it. All right. So how do we make this a reality? It's by faith. Faith is the divider. Communion is a spiritual faith union. This is Calvin. He said we must eat with our hearts and not with our teeth. You know, we can show up to communion. We can go through the exercise and, you know, we can... Rub-a-dub-dub and choppy-chomp and slug-slug. But, you know what? If that's what we're doing, Jesus never got in. And I'm afraid a lot of people, they go through the ritual and it doesn't mean any more than what we, you know, washing our feet a little bit, slugging our cracker down with some juice. We're worse than the children who are attending, who want to have the snack. We must eat with our hearts and not with our teeth. To just eat the signs without the faith does not give life. Isn't that what Jesus was always 
up against with the Jews in the Old Testament. They were, they were sacrificing those sheep and the goats and the bullocks they, all the time. I mean, they had rivers of blood coming out of the sanctuary, but they did not believe what it was representing. All those years. So when Jesus came on the scene and John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God, all the Jews were like, ta-da, this is who we've been killing all these years. This is who the real deal is. You know what? It went, wing right over their head. They didn't even get it. Because they were eating, they were sacrificing all those animals with no faith. In fact, they worshipped the idea of giving the animal instead of who the animal was symbolizing. So we must have faith to receive the blessing of communion. Otherwise, we're just as bad as the Jews. You know, the bread and the juice do not become the physical body of Christ. I know there are churches that teach that. And there's a fancy word for it, if I can remember it correctly. I think it's transubstantiation. And then you have Martin Luther, this consub- consubstantiation. Right? Well, the trans one is where, it's in the Catholic faith, they believe that they are re-sacrificing Christ. They're redoing his sacrifice. But the Bible says Jesus was sacrificed once. So that concept is erroneous. And if there's any Catholics here, I'm sorry, but the Bible says that. But with Martin Luther, he had a version of it, but not a total acceptance of them. It was just a slight variation. But then when you get to Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, I believe from my studying of his stuff, he had it down. He truly believed Christ was spiritually present, but not physically in the emblems present. Because Martin Luther, he still had the body and the blood of Christ in there somehow. Not completely, but in there. It was like under it, not in it. It's a big play on words and it's very confusing. But the issue is, with Zwingli, he had Jesus there, working on our hearts, speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. But he didn't have Jesus in the actual body, or the blood, and in the, I'm sorry, the juice and the bread. We're not chomping on Jesus. We're not cannibalistic. And you know, when Jesus said in John 6, you know, you got to eat my body and drink my blood, and the Jews were like, well, how are we going to do that? They knew what he was talking about. They knew exactly what he was talking about. He wasn't saying to become a cannibal. Their problem was they didn't want to move from faith, I'm sorry, works by righteousness by works. They didn't want to go to righteousness by faith. They wanted to stay with what was comfortable, what they were used to, by sacrificing their sheep all the time. They could see that sheep. They could touch that sheep. They didn't want to leave the sheep alone and go to absolute faith. That was their issue. And they knew that. And they struggled with that. And they stayed there. But we have to keep on going. We can't stay where they stayed or we're going to end up where they're going to end up. So these emblems were a symbol. They're just like the sacrifices were a symbol. To do otherwise would mean Jesus is teaching us to be cannibalistic and drink blood. And we know that is forbidden in the book of Leviticus. It's also in the book of Acts. And also, Jesus would be disqualifying himself as our Messiah if we're actually going to chomp on his physical body. The Jews, they struggled with that. Communion is salvation by faith. It's trusting in Christ's sacrifice completely, 100%, all the way. To eat communion, we renounce any and every other form of salvation other than through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
We talked about eating it unworthily. To eat it unworthily is to trust in my own works to get me there. Helping all those old ladies cross the street, giving all the Bible studies to the kids, that's going to get me there. That's wrong. I am renouncing my efforts as my means of salvation. So when I eat that bread, I'm saying, Jesus, I completely trust in you to get me to heaven. Absolute faith in Christ and his righteousness of getting us to heaven. That is the purpose of the bread. That's a huge statement. So you don't have to worry about, take this in context, you don't have to worry about getting yourself all straightened out before communion. Just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm trusting in you to get me straightened out. You'll be eating it worthily then. When I finally realize that, I'm like, oh, I can like communion now. Because I absolutely despised it before because I was trying to get myself all holy before communion because I thought that's what I had to do. I didn't understand. To eat the body of Christ spiritually is equivalent to trusting with heart and soul upon the mercy and goodness of God through Christ. You eat the body of Christ spiritually. Every time your soul puts the anxious question, how are you to be saved? When you comfort yourself in Christ, then you spiritually eat his body. See, Jesus is the whole enchilada. He's the whole thing. When we eat that bread, we are declaring our absolute inability to save ourselves, and we are completely throwing ourselves into the arms of Jesus' forgiveness and mercy. So eating that bread is more serious. You're saying, Lord, I completely trust you with every fiber, ounce, mental ability, spiritual ability that I have. You are all in all. That's what it's saying. My last slide. So the big question is, when you're coming to communion, have you put all your trust in him to save you? Or you still got a little chunk over here or a little rope dangling behind you with a rock. You know, you're trusting in that thing and you're dragging it to church. That's not going to work. You have to completely trust in Jesus for salvation. And eating that bread says you do. Do you have any questions? We ended actually on 15 minutes early. So are there any questions about the bread? He does. I'm afraid that um, in the Christian world that that has become a cliche. Because do we really seriously think about that comment? You know, we even sing the song with the kids, um, the blind man stood by the road begging, you know, and Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we sing that song, and I think that is good, we need to teach it, but do we stop and think about what the song is saying? You know, we do a lot of things without stopping to think. We say a lot of things without stopping to think. We do a lot of things without stopping to think. And in America, Christianity has been the, the basic belief for the last 200 years, years here, and it's just taken for granted. We think we're Christians, but we don't really live like Christ. We don't think like Christ. We don't behave. We're doing some things, but we're not being many things. So, so what are some comments that, what was a new thought for you about the bread? Yes, that is another aspect to be brought out. It's looking forward to the second coming. Yep. And we've been talking about that the last few days. I mean, 
there really is no point for a non-believer to participate because they're not looking forward to the second coming. Because we were asking yesterday, do we want to be there in heaven with him? You know, do we want him to return? Are we ready? And I don't mean just ready, sin-free. I mean, am I ready to surrender this type of life for that type of life? And um, we're kind of caught, you know. Parents want grandkids. You know, um, kids want to grow up and get married and have their own kids. I was at, um, what do you call it, Black Hills training, and we had one of our young men. He asked the pastor who was teaching, he's like, should we bother to get married? And he knew what he was referring to. He's like, well, you better get married now because you're not going to have that in heaven. <laughs> better hurry up with that. But... Um, what are we looking forward to? Do we, are we ready to lay down this type of a life for the life that Christ has in store? Jesus isn't tacked on. It's a refocusing. It's a new priority. See, Jesus isn't tacked on. He's not put into another um, drawer or on another shelf in our, in, our house, in our house, in our homes, in our hearts. He actually takes over it all. He's the whole thing. And that is scary because you become a different person. I mean, if you would have met me 21, 22 years ago, one thing, you wouldn't even recognize me. Another thing, I wouldn't be standing in front of people. I mean, I read my Bible, but um, I didn't know any of this stuff. But you would not have known me. And my sister-in-law was thinking, hmm, what was she like? (laughs) You don't want to (laughs) know. But the Lord has completely, I mean, okay, I have a lot more to go yet, but the Lord has completely changed me from what I used to be. I don't know if I shared it the other days, but in my family, I grew up as a farmer, and we've been there since 1868, so everybody in the community knows who we are, and uh, we were a screaming family, and you could hear us screaming all the way to the next farm, an eighth of a mile down the road, and this went on forever and ever and ever, and so... um, the Lord got into our lives and our hearts, and I was working in the field, and the neighbor girl came over, we're friends, and she said, what? what's going on up there? We don't hear you guys yelling anymore. That's what she said. And I was like, wow. She says, well, Jesus stopped and he stayed this time. That's what I told her. And my mom, my dad, my brother, his wife, their three children, and me, we all got the Lord. So, and then before my uncle died, he got the Lord. And on my grandparents' deathbed, they got the Lord. So now we just got to work on his two younger children. My brother's two younger children, they've left it. You know, they decided to uh, dabble in the world. And they're reaping some of those consequences. And one is starting to come back once in a while. So that's good. Hopefully he'll bring his lady and his child along with that. But um, So what blessings did you receive today? My group over here. Yesterday we said, where's the men? So here we got some men today, which is good. We're all ladies yesterday. So what did you guys think of that was shared today? You know, when you get to studying a topic, you really get your mind blown away. Because you sit there and you're like, whoa, I didn't consider that before. I've had lots of whoa. It's like, wow, that's, that's pretty serious. That's kind of scary. It's like, wow, that's really touching on, stepping on my toes. And the more I study it, the more I fall in love with it. 
because it's like, wow, this is so much more meaningful than what it was 21 years ago. Because I didn't know a hill of beans then about this subject. I have a book written on this. In fact, when you came in, I was reading my chapter on this to try to get it back into my mind. Um, I have it edited. The editor made some suggestions. I haven't taken the time to do that. And she did that last year at this exact time. <laughs> um, I do Bible work full time. So I am, I'm always working on Bible studies with people. And I, I do that. I wrote my book in my spare time. And then I got all inspired about making lessons on this, actual going through the verses for all this instead of me just telling you. And so I have 11 lessons, but I've only gotten through the foot washing. So I still have to do the bread, the Passover, and the juice. So it's going to be a number of months. <laughs> and I handwrite it all, and I only have one type out of those 11. <laughs> but I do that um, when somebody cancels a Bible study. That's, so it's my spare time project. Yeah, I think it would be really good because you have a non-church person coming in. They don't know it, what, what this is. And that's really a disservice to them, in my opinion. That's not fair. They need to know what's going on. That is a pretty intense um, version of it. There's, some, there's aspects I don't agree about the movie, but um, that would show you a pretty... Do you then see why when the thief on his right hand said to him, to Jesus, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom? Here he's looking at this mutilated human who is claiming to be the son of God, the king, and he's like, this thing hanging here is the king of the universe, the creator of me? And he's like, you're doing this for me? You're doing this so that I can be with God the Father? I mean, can you imagine his, the experience of hanging next to Christ and saying, for me? You're taking... I'm dying for my sin. You're taking my sin right at this moment unto you. Remember me. I believe you are the king. That was a huge moment for Christ. It was the only bright spot he had. It was the only assurance. It was the only encouragement that he had. And it's all he needed. And he did it. You know, Jesus had every single person on his mind when he died but he especially had that one. Because that man was physically dying with him at that moment. So for, those, for Jesus and that thief, that was an extremely powerful time frame, that, those six hours there. And when, when you know, Jesus died before the other two guys did, we know the Bible says they came and whacked their legs so they would die faster. The thief on that cross didn't even die that day. You know, they, they broke his legs and they took him down. They probably just threw him in the pit of Gehenna so he could just be eaten by the worms and whatnot, and he died a slow, lingering death there. That is true, because, well, that's the whole point, suffocation. But they couldn't hang on the cross on the Sabbath. So, we should have a closing prayer, because, unless you have any more comments or questions. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can, can be here, that we can learn more about what Jesus did for us on that cross and help us when we do have the next communion service, which actually is this Friday, Lord. I pray that you help us to remember that and to fully enter into that relationship with Jesus, to fully surrender so we can truly experience the peace that passes understanding that you're so willing to give to us. Help us believe like that thief on the cross that Jesus is everything he said he is. Give us the faith and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.